The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very good morning, everybody. A shot across the bow. Washington ramps up the pressure for global digital taxes as it imposes and then immediately suspends tariffs on six nations at the center of talks. AMC shares soar 95% and extend gains in after-hours trading as a buying frenzy continues with the cinema chain offering free popcorn to shareholders. Growth in China's services sector slows in the month of May, according to a private sector survey, as weak overseas demand and rising costs weigh on businesses. They left it late, but Israel's opposition leader says he's reached a deal to form a government, potentially bringing an end to Benjamin Netanyahu's 12 years in charge. And we are live on the ground for day one of the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum. We're going to be speaking to a raft of CEOs. 2,000 delegates are expected to attend, a fifth of them coming from China and from the Middle East. Qatar is the major partner here. But big news on the guest front, we're going to be speaking with the Deputy Prime Minister of Russia, Alexander Novak, in just a few hours from now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Great to have you with us on the show. We're going to get back out to Russia very shortly, but I think we need to spend a bit of time on the markets, Karen. Yeah, Good let's morning. take a look at some of the moves. Good morning to you as well, Jeff. All we had across the markets, a little bit of green in the Asian trade, and you can see it's been a fairly decent run for Australian stocks, in particular six tenths higher again today, leading the charge out of the region. Japanese stocks are putting on about half of a percent or 140 points in the middle, and we saw a little patch of weakness here yesterday. And these markets are just showing a bit of a mixed response finally in the green again for the china markets but a little bit of weakness still for hong kong stocks the dollar uh, let's peel away from this we've seen a lot of uh, data chasing this week around jobs reports inflation numbers and uh, also manufacturing and this is a market still waiting up for the all-important jobs report on friday uh, the dollar good news is are uh, typically bad news at this point for the dollar any improvement that you're seeing in the global economy is uh, just taking the shine off the u.s dollar but you can see more session it has uh, managed to, to wrestle back some control we've got sterling on the back foot as a result and also euro 122 the handle that we're holding at uh, stronger versus the japanese yen and uh, on the crosses uh, 6.38 is what we're watching a uh, quick look at those u.s markets here's how we approached you can see in the green only just it was a, a trade where investors are still cautious the dow up five sessions in a row still inching ahead that said uh, i mentioned that all important report later on this week i think investors have not managed to calm some of those fears around inflation which is why we've got this cautious behavior right now and i think investors are just struggling with the long-term returns as well as they look at how far we've marched forward at this point yeah if i might be so bold i might just suggest it's about jobs 
isn't it, this week, really? Mm -hmm. I mean, the inflation thing is there. It's a massive existential threat for everybody as they try and figure out whether it's good news or bad news. And I thought Elon Musk uh, yesterday, I mean, we criticise Elon Musk a lot, but the fact that he focused on this excess demand now, it seems, for chip stocks as being very much like the panic we saw around toilet paper, I thought he actually came up with something that was fairly accurate. Um, but I'm not sure if I want to keep that image in my head as we try and conjure up the idea that we're now operating in a, a toilet paper economy. Okay. What was that old phrase? Soft, strong and very, very long? That was, I think, the marketing slogan. You spent too much time watching uh, toilet ads. But, yeah, I think, well, we're talking about watching. I think that's a perfect segue, Karen. It's almost like we rehearsed these ad libs, isn't it? Let's have a look at some of these boards. Um, AMC is the big story, of course, uh, in terms of how um, the analysis in the United States is just baking down some of the share price moves here. Uh, and what a, uh, an amazing uh, rebound here for AMC in terms of the the move. Uh, and of course, these are movie theatres in the United States. And uh, I don't know how Karen feels about puppies. In fact, you have a dog, so I know you love you puppies love and puppies. you love dogs. And, <laughs> um, and I think that's uh, part of the story here because Cruella had a terrific four-day memorial uh, weekend. I think it was about $27 million on the open. And uh, A Quiet Place 2, I don't know if that's on your retinue of uh, movies that you want to watch P at the Peter moment. Peter Rabbit's up there before right. that. Right. Yeah. A Quiet Place 2 apparently was the, the big success story over the four-day weekend. But obviously that helped lift um, AMC Entertainment. And I love free stuff. Do you like free stuff? Everybody we all like free stuff. stuff. <laughs> but I don't know if it's exactly free <laughs> popcorn, <laughs> but AMC saying that... They'll give you popcorn if you're a free popcorn if you're a shareholder. Um, I love popcorn too, as it happens. AMC then up 95%. Bed Bath and Beyond also rebounding here. Um, a few reasons floating around, if you'll pardon the pun, as to why Bed Bath and Beyond is higher here. But it, it's all part of this general uplift we're seeing about reopening stocks. And of course, the I think the headline around the AMC story, in a sense, was the fact that they're now talking about you can come back to our movie theatres without a mask and this issue of whether you wear a mask or don't wear a mask has been incredibly polarizing in the United States with some people equating it to personal freedom and liberty but the fact that they've said that you can do that I think is seen as giving this whole sector an additional kicker. Mm. Uh, just for the sake of disclosure, also like bath mats and hand towels as well right, as we talked about bed bath and beyond. Great. I'm, I'm not saying those bath bombs, those, I'm not big on the bath yeah, bombs. Yeah, I'm not big on those honest. either. No. A, a little bit yeah. too much perfume in some of them. Yes. yes. But, but coming back to the markets, you, yeah. you point out, do I like free things and yeah. popcorn? Well, yeah. if you look at the price that you're paying on the escalation of the stock in some of the trading days, are you paying a massive premium just to get that free popcorn? If that's the reason why you're buying it, I think a lot of fundamental investors are looking at the stock trade and now saying, why is this stock going up? There's so much now built up into the price. A lot of this is down to uh, effectively the marketing behind the scenes, almost a remaking of investor relations. And typically, if you think of that, about that role, uh, someone used to go out to the market, talk to a lot of institutional investors about the long-term returns in the business, what they're doing in terms of investment, paying down debt, uh, share buybacks, dividends, you know, bringing a whole suite of investment tools to investors. That was the role of investor relations, not to 
advertise free popcorn and invitations to cinema screenings. That was not typically the function of an investor relations role. That's a marketing role. But now the two seem to have come together. And the point is, where does that leave the retail investor? What exactly are they buying at this point? Uh, for me, the other big one is the remaking of some of the, the share registers that you've witnessed. As we used to talk about AGMs when we used to go along to them, it was a, an elderly crowd that used to turn up, uh, had some very uh, important questions to ask over the course of what is typically a long day. That's now changed to a younger audience that has been pulled into some of these stocks based on social media and memes and just getting involved in this momentum trade as they see it through social media. Well, let's be frank here. It's about anger as well, isn't it? And it's about the little guy poking the big guy in the eye. And, and that's the sense, I think, around the GameStop retail trade here, that what's going on with AMC is it's also striking a blow against those uh, big uh, movie studios like Warner Brothers, who appeared to pull the rug away from the theatres by suggesting that they would take their movies directly to streaming via their own platforms. And I think that's irritated a lot of the retail crowd, the younger crowd, who actually want to step up and defend the movie theatres going forward, if for no other reason than to try and make those institutional investors who've taken uh, the Warner Brothers other side of the trade here, if for no other reason than to try and make them look embarrassed if they start to think about shorting some of these stocks with such um, outsized moves. I mean, let's face it, whatever the fundamental story is around the reopening of the theatres, I don't know that it justifies a 95% one-day move. Yeah, but funnily enough, it's the big guys that actually win here. We've got one of the major hedge funds that picked up uh, some of the stock at a discounted price uh, around a capital raising, a hedge fund, and then uh, effectively sold it the next day. So we haven't got the hedge fund settling in for the screening with their pick and mix. They're effectively engaging in pick and flick. They're selling at the stock the next day for a profit. So I, I don't think that it's just the retail investor doing well on some of these uptick days. It's the hedge funds. It's the large investors also cleaning up here on the trade. Well, if you want to read more about this on a website, yeah, you can go to that, how to make sure you don't end up buying high and selling low in the midst of this meme mania. That is the, the title. And uh, you can see there's more information uh, in that particular story, Jeff. Uh, okay, so let's move on. Uh, and we'll set that aside. As always, if there's anything you want to contribute to the conversation we're having, then please get in touch via Twitter or the email address. Uh, the US is now threatening to slap tariffs on $2 billion worth of goods from six countries, including the UK. US Trade Representative Catherine Tai said in a statement that Washington would impose duties but immediately suspended them for 180 days over the six countries' tax rules on U.S. tech businesses. Ty said the move would allow for talks to continue on a global minimum corporation tax, but the U.S. could also impose fresh levies if warranted. Well, the U.K. Chancellor Rishi Sunak says Britain and its G7 allies are edging towards a global tax agreement but he insists the final deal must see America's big tech companies pay more tax in the countries that they operate in and generate revenue in. The UK has so far refrained from publicly backing Washington's plan for a 15% global minimum tax rate, but Sunak told Reuters he would support the deal 
provided it targets the right companies. Sunak is set to host talks with G7 finance ministers in London on Friday and Saturday. Let's get to Rebecca Harding, the CEO of Coriolis Technologies. Uh, Rebecca's largely focused on supply chains, but does dabble uh, with market commentary occasionally, Rebecca. Nice to see you this morning. Thanks for joining us. Look, just give us your thoughts on this uh, announcement um, from the USTR. She was on a deadline anyway, I think, to make some comment about the uh, idea of uh, tech taxes. Uh, What do you think of the move that the US has engaged in? So um, the Biden administration is very clear here. It's taking a multilateral move. It's imposing tariffs taking them away again. So its its approach is very, very much a stick and a carrot at the same time. We will impose these tariffs if you don't fall into line, but um, we won't do it just yet, just so that we can have a sensible conversation. So it's, it's still showing that trade is slightly weaponized under the Biden administration, but it's something that obviously they're keen, not, they're keen to do this multilaterally and say, well, the US is back with taking a leadership role. Do you think this uh, lays down a gauntlet about U.S. intentions around its technology companies? Because the big complaint has been you derive the revenue in Europe, the tax must be paid in Europe. Is the U.S., do you think, as it tries to steer countries towards this 15 percent, looking actually to funnel any revenue generated uh, through taxation back towards the United States rather than having it paid in the domiciles where the um, the sales were done. So you've you've absolutely hit on it there and that really is a big the big challenge here. So I mean the OECD all of the countries appreciate that there's a big issue around where the tax actually sits. Does it sit where the IP is generated which is what the US argues it should do or does it sit with where the consumer is where the revenues are generated? And the US stands to lose and has been losing a lot of money. I mean 90 90 billion in tax revenue from these companies because they go elsewhere. But I think there's something underlying this which is perhaps a little bit more important at this particular point in time the Biden administration is very keen to get its its tax hike its corporation tax hike um, through Congress and so by bringing countries in line around this minimum corporate tax rate um, and and having um, some kind of discussion and hopefully fixing an agreement quite quickly it's more able to nudge that through Congress it's more likely to get consensus around that. Do you think this is just theatrics uh, to, to play to, to various uh, constituencies at home? If you look at the, this side in Europe, uh, the uh, digital technology uh, tax or the digital tax very much sought, but uh, at this point there's still some challenge around the, the 15% global minimum, minimum tax on corporations. So there's a lot of tug of war over exactly what these countries want on this side of the world. If you look at the United States, even though Biden might want this uh, level on the, the global minimum corporation tax, there's still a challenge but handing over those profits from Silicon Valley. Do you think this just settles down some of the the disputes still in various parts of the world? 
th- I think if you listen to the Japanese rhetoric yesterday, it was quite it was quite interesting because um, the Japanese were saying um, we're not going to commit to this. Um, we're not going to agree something at the G G seven uh, finance ministers, um, but we're edging closer to an agreement. And the the British were also very keen to say, well, actually, um, this is getting towards a framework that we're interested in, um, and we want to deal with digital tax, and we want to agree um, the corporation tax, the global corporation tax at the same time. So so what they've done is kind of smoothed over some of the cracks in the de- dispute globally at the moment while playing very much to a domestic audience. The United States is back. It's taking a role in global foreign policy and global taxation policy. And so it's actually for a domestic audience, it's quite, it's quite an emollient tone, but it's also, it's also saying, but we still have your concerns at heart. Rebecca, I want to get into the strategy too from the Biden administration here on tariffs. I mean, there's been a legacy, a handover, a gift from President Trump in the sense that he had these tariffs in place across a range of different industries and the threat of more to come based on a retaliatory action. Do you think the world now does take the threat of US tariffs quite seriously thanks to President Trump? I think the way in which um, Trump has changed the world and the trade world and the way in which um, tariffs are used as a weapon for foreign policy, absolutely, it's changed. Everybody takes that seriously. So what we've got here, got what we've got here with this situation um, is a, as I said, a stick and a carrot approach. So we're going to give you the carrot of further conversations. We're going to let you do that. But um, we're going to impose tariffs if um, you don't come in line with our way of thinking. And I think that's very important. But you have to say, this is actually a relatively small amount um, that the US government is targeting. So I mean, for the UK, for example, it's on clothing, it's 800 million um, in tariffs, it's it's equivalent to the digital tax. Um, so, so, so it's argued. But but it's actually less than 1% of our total trade with the United States. So it's very much softer tactics. It's very much more multilateral. Well, let's do this slowly. Let's only do it as a last resort. But you also have to remember, this is being done outside of international frameworks. So it's not being done with the World Trade Organization. The OECD, of course, is building a consensus around all of this, but it's very much a multilateral consensus. It's not an international organization as such. So this is about the US of dabbling in, in, in areas where it feels it can start to have an influence and using that stick that the Trump administration has very kindly left behind. Rebecca, uh, one last one from me, and, and it's just about Elon Musk and um, the vicious cycle that he's described and the toilet paper effect, which, as we know, was this um, panic uh, in the early days of um, the coronavirus um, uh, issues, where people overstocked, if you like, and hoarded uh, toilet paper because they were worried about uh, shortages and it running out. Are we now seeing the same thing unfold with companies? Are they over-ordering to protect themselves? And does that mean in six to 12 months' time, we're going to have one heck of an inventory overhang? Um, very, very good question. How long have you got? Um, um, I think the short answer to that is yes, we are seeing some stockpiling going on. It's not just it's not just um, the, the toilet paper effect, if you like. It's not just shortages around COVID. It's not just disruptions on the manufacturing side. The whole trade system has changed. Um, so we're looking at um, we're looking at localization of supply chains 
inventories being run on a just-in-case rather than a just-in-time basis. And that's a really big shift in the way in which trade and trade finance are working, and it completely changes things. So we are seeing stockpiling. There's no sense in which that process is going to change. I think I think what we're going to see, though, is getting up to a level where if there is a you know, for the sake of argument, maybe not another COVID, but another ship gets stuck in the Suez Canal or something, then then we can withstand, the global supply system can withstand those stocks, but it makes it a great deal less lean. So it, it's, it's signalling a big shift in the way in which we manage supply chains globally. And around just in case versus just in time. Rebecca, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Rebecca Harding, CEO of Coriolis Technologies. China's services sector growth slowed down in May as weaker overseas demand and inflation pressures weighed on businesses. The Kaishin Services PMI fell to 55.1 in the month of May from 56.3 in April, remaining in expansionary territory. Uh, still to come on the programme this morning, Israeli opposition parties have reached a deal to form a coalition government, putting longtime Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's tenure at risk. We'll have more on that story when we come back. And if you want more on the latest move in so-called meme stocks, including a surge in interest around one cinema chain, AMC Entertainment, you can check that out on Squawk Box Podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give to someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Welcome back, everybody. Israeli opposition parties have reached a deal to form a coalition government that could oust the country's longest serving prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. The agreement would see him replaced by right-wing Yamina party head uh, Naftali Bennett, followed by centrist leader Yar Lapid in 2023. The move still needs parliamentary approval at this point. Let's get out to Dan, who's been um, giving us the latest on this over the last few days here. So, so Dan, how, how far, well, how close are we actually to this really taking place? Well, Jeff, I would contend that we are very close. Over the past 24 hours, we've heard that Israel's opposition parties have come together to form a unity government with the sole goal of unseating Israel's longest serving prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. Less than 30 minutes before that midnight deadline last night, we heard from the Yamina party leader, Naftali Bennett, as well as Yael Lapid of the Yesh Atid party, saying that they would be coming together ultimately securing enough support in the Knesset to form a government and to end Benjamin Netanyahu's reign. This is going to see Naftali Bennett becoming likely the next Prime Minister of Israel. But make no mistake, this is a hodgepodge of parties coming together, including for the first time in Israel's history, 
an Arab party. An analyst that we've spoken to out of Tel Aviv this morning would say that perhaps it could be too complex to succeed. Nevertheless, we've also heard from others who say that this is likely to go ahead and we will see that change in Israeli leadership. We've also heard from the Labour Party leader, who is the the uh, part of this coalition, and he says that uh, while they will be working very hard to ensure that this goes ahead, there are still some challenges that remain. Either way, he suggested that change has come to Israel. Listen. The government of change is really news that so many citizens were waiting for, that Israel needs so much. We still have a long way and the Labour Party will be there all along the way to make sure that things are being done like they should. Tonight, we're starting a new beginning. Of course, this is not over yet, though, because we also know that Benjamin Netanyahu is not going to go Homer Simpson into the hedge. He's not going to go away quietly into the night. And that's because he still has around 10 to 12 days before this unity coalition is put to the test with a confidence vote in the Knesset that will ultimately decide what happens next. Netanyahu also uh, suggesting here that he is unlikely to resign, at least according to people that we've spoken to this morning. And that means he's likely to do everything in his power to ensure that this does not go ahead. However, it would seem that the momentum uh, against him is growing. Either way, this is going to have significant implications for Israel domestically and internationally. We know that Netanyahu has played a very, very large role in Israel's presence around the world, including in the United States, where he has certainly injected himself into the domestic and foreign policy debate over the past decade. And at the same time, any change that we see in Israel could also result in significant changes to other major geopolitical um, issues of contention, such as the Iran nuclear deal, for example, and more recently, how Israel treats Palestinians moving forward. So a lot to contend with here, guys. We'll continue to follow uh, this vote as it progresses, but certainly likely change coming to Israel. Back over to you. Dan, excellent. Thank you so much for the coverage. Now, Russia is planning to spend around $5.5 billion annually on infrastructure projects. Uh, This from a senior official. The money will come from the National Wealth Fund and will also help support the country's development strategy. Uh, Hadley is with us now on the first day of the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum. It's that time of year again, Hadley, where we end up getting lots of major announcements on the economy. How quickly can they turn around some of the weakness that we saw as a result of the pandemic? Essentially what we've heard uh, over the last couple of days, just being here on the ground. Obviously, we spoke with the central bank governor in that exclusive interview that we brought to you yesterday. I asked her specifically about that. I asked her, are your projections for economic growth in this country in line with what we're hearing from the World Bank? They had projected around 3.2 percent in terms of GDP growth in 2021. She said, yes, we're projecting between 3 and 4 percent GDP growth this year. She said, you know, at the end of the day, one of the biggest worries, not just for Russia, but globally, of course, is inflation. Uh, She's been quite hawkish, as you know, uh, when it comes to interest rates, there is a huge expectation that we could even see an interest rate hike by as much as 50 basis point at their June 11th meeting. Um, But of course, uh, she didn't want to give us too much of a preview on that one. But it's interesting to note that when we see the folks coming to this forum, you know, you and I have been covering St. Petersburg International Economic Forum for years now, particularly post those sanctions uh, over Crimea. And just the investors that are coming here in terms of, uh, frankly, the geographical location, 
we're getting Chinese investors. We're getting a lot of investors, again, from the Middle East. They make up about a fifth of the delegations that we're seeing here. 2,000 delegates expected to come throughout the couple of days here uh, of this forum. And lots of questions, frankly, about that move eastward and whether or not we're going to see that even deepening as a result of the meeting that's coming up in a couple of weeks now uh, between U.S. President Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin. Lots of questions about uh, what this is going to look like going forward. Now, we also heard earlier in the week, as you guys know, uh, from the central bank governor about um, the move toward crypto, the move toward digital currencies. I asked her specifically about that in terms of creating that buffer uh, for the economy over U.S. sanctions. And she essentially said, you know, this isn't just about de-dollarization. This is also about making payments easier in a country um, that is set and ripe for a digital boom. And we're going to be speaking to some of the CEOs uh, today uh, from the biggest players in Russia, not just in the telecom space, but also, of course, in terms of e-commerce and, and digitization as well. So lots of questions about the future of this economy. But seemingly, um, when you look at it with regards to the global economy, not half bad. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.